Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Reconsider Quarantine Edition, where we don't, don't do the thinking I'd for you. Part of the like podcast but... network, sorry, part of the <laughs> podcast network. And like you, we are going slightly crazy in these times. One thing we're going to be doing is trying to increase the number of episodes that we get out, both to keep us sane and keep you sane. We'll see how well we do. As as part of our little way of trying to help the world, we're not going to charge patrons more than two episodes per month. That's sort of what we tell people to expect. We're not going to try to take more of your money. So we're still only going to charge for, for two. If we get out more in the month, then great for everyone. If we don't, then, you know, maybe one of us will, will be sick at some point. But uh, we're going to we're going to try to keep the con. You know, we're definitely going to keep the content coming. And today uh, actually is going to be our most i know we so we're like we don't chase the news but today we're doing a public service announcement about the stimulus bill yeah and it's actually it's it's good timing because there's a lot of stuff in here there's a lot of people that need to know this information really quickly and because there's so information that so much information in this bill that's hard to unpack well that's why we're getting this out quickly and interestingly enough we'll get to this in a little bit more detail but the last episode we did was also about it was an unusual episode. It was me advocating for a position and Eric playing devil's advocate and debating me back. And one of the things that I advocated for actually got included in the stimulus bill. So yeah. we'll get into that. We'll get into something else we generally don't do, which is our different outlooks on just sort of the world right now. Yeah. So it will be a little of our of our own thinking. And we always try to warn you when we're doing that up front because we really believe in the reconsider message. But this is just such an unprecedented situation that we're just doing things a little bit differently for one or two episodes. I, I was at, well, actually looking at this bill. I was wondering who listened who in Congress listened to our last episode and snuck some some Snyder amendments in there? I mean, I feel it's it's almost exactly what I was suggesting, which is cool. I'm, but lots of other smart people were suggesting it too. So it's just one of the things that I feel about this bill, which again, we'll get into more detail shortly, is it actually feels fairly comprehensive and it feels like it it does a lot of what needs to be done. And I'm surprised because I'm generally kind of a cynic when it comes to politics and policy. And I was actually kind of surprised by the comprehensiveness of this bill. So before we get into the details, let's just up front here at Reconsider, we talk about news and economics and stuff that's going on. We are not offering 
any financial or tax or accounting advice or anything like that. So that's not what this episode is. If you know, clearly talk with an advisor if you have questions about how any of the stimulus stuff actually affects your circumstance. Our own and and legal any legal warnings aside, our own interpretation and we are trying to digest, you know, we're we're trying to digest other people's digestions of a bill in a terrible information human centipede. There may oh God, why did I do that? Um <laughs> uh, anyway, there's there's stuff about this that we may be wrong about. So hopefully yeah. it is helpful in guiding you the right questions to ask um and the right research to do. Uh, please don't please don't assume that we are the source of truth on this. Uh, we are we are remember just remember as much as you love us and we love you. We are amateur podcasters and have other jobs and are not trained experts in le- tax uh, accounting. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. Exactly. So uh, we love you. We hope you love us. Just you know, check what we do. It's what we encourage you to do with everyone, including us. True. I think before we hop into the detail of the stimulus. Yeah. Speaking of fact checking. Yeah, exactly. We wanted to talk about one thing that's not the stimulus bill, but it's COVID related really quickly because a lot of people have been kind of just picking up these statistics that China is releasing and being like, okay, cool. So everything's, everything's fine now in China. Right, Eric? That's, that's what I keep hearing. Yeah. And the, the big story that came out, I think it was last week was deaths in Italy have now surpassed. Uh, deaths in Italy by COVID-19 have surpassed deaths in China by COVID-19. And as someone who has actually studied China a fair amount and China's history, uh, China's financial system, China's economy, all of that stuff, I can say that there's almost no way these numbers are reliable. And it's not stemming from any sort of anti-China bias. It's just that China has well-established history of faking statistics in a number of different departments for all sorts of political purposes. And you see this all the time in their estimates of non-performing loans, for example, in their financial system. They release this figure that's like 1.6%, which is really, really low. And independent estimates by pretty much any serious uh, economist or scholar says it could be anywhere in the range of like 8 to 20%. So these things happen. There are political reasons why it happens you know the cpc is it's one uh, the, the chinese communist party it's a one party system and sort of part of the social contract is we will manage the country ex- uh, professionally with expertise and you don't really have a say in politics and that's what you give up in exchange for it so anything that questions their competency is a threat mm-hmm. to their their political rule and if you look at I mean, even in recent Chinese history, but this goes way back. One infamous example of China just being bad at even collecting statistics for its own internal consumption. So not only does the Communist Party have a history of lying or publishing false statistics, China also has a history of not being able to collect statistics for itself very effectively. And in the Great Leap Forward, forward when Mao said, you know, we're going to take all of these farmers and turn them into industrial workers... No one was willing to communicate to Mao what was actually happening to him, that the, what was actually happening to the country, that the program wasn't working because they were afraid that they would be purged or exiled if they said anything that went against Mao's official party position. So local officials made up figures about how successful everything was as millions of people were starving to death. Right. And I, I of course, was sitting here being a little bit skeptical as well, but thinking, well, I don't really have any, I don't really have any data to suggest that they are wrong. 
we're going to link a Business Insider article here that, you know, again, so- sources are hard to to dig up. Like nobody, as much as China, as much as China has a hard time trying to get statistics about its own people out of its own country, uh, nobody else can do better, right? So there is not actually good, seriously good competing data. Um, but the Business Insider article just just talks about the United Kingdom government estimating that China's cases are 15 to 40 times higher than they're saying, which, you know, again, who knows, but it would mean that they have cases in the millions, which seems more likely. Again, I was, I was, I was sitting here thinking, well, I've just got my crazy conspiracy theory going on here about China. And the, the story I had behind my crazy conspiracy theory was that, was that early, you know, early on the symptoms are so flu like that it would be hard to, you know, that when it, it, at its first outbreak, before someone else has gone through this before, it'd be hard to even know what's going on or how to deal with it. And wouldn't, you know, in a very densely populated country, wouldn't that cause, wouldn't that cause it to spread incredibly quickly, et cetera? And, and so I was thinking it just, it just would seem bloody hard without locking down the entire country, period, to stop the spread. Now, uh, on the other hand, I mean, it is the case that, that a lot in China is still functional, like that there, there are, there's video of people walking around in Beijing. It's not, you know, this isn't 28 days later. And there's a lot of, so this is, this is all kind of on the other side of the pendulum or the other side of the scale. You know, it's not, it's not a zombie apocalypse. And the, you know, the Chinese government has, kind of has the benefit of being an authoritarian dictatorship here by you know, immediately just rallying all the resources it needs, setting up checkpoints everywhere. If you don't have the right papers to go to the right place, like you just don't go, right? That that freedom of movement that, say, the United States is grappling with right now, how it wants to deal with, given our our liberties and our rights, it just doesn't exist in China. And China could just say, okay, you know, we're just locking everything down. So they do have they do have an ability to respond quickly that a lot of other governments just don't. And so there's these two competing stories in my own head, but certainly some evidence and some and some history to suggest that the numbers are probably not. So teaspoons, bags, bags of salt, people, bags of salt with statistics coming out of China. Just, you know, be skeptical. Look for independent third party sources where they exist. A lot of times they won't right now. And just be aware of the political incentives to make things look rosy. Yep. All right. All right. Stimulus so, bill. Let's do it. Thing, stimulus bill. Let's do it. So, why is there a stimulus bill? You know, we've got we've got something that's killed fewer people than the flu so far, and uh, you know, and and why is the entire country grinding to a halt? Obviously, the so let's go all the way back. Why is the entire country and why is kind of the Western world grinding to a halt? Because the death rate of COVID-19 is probably more than 10x that of the flu, uh, the seasonal flu, in part because it's a novel, you know, you've heard the term novel coronavirus. It is novel so that people don't have, people don't have immunities built up. There's no vaccine. Um, you know, the flu every year, our, our plan for it is to vaccinate as many people as, as possible. Uh, and it is quite, you know, it's a, it's, it has some transmission capability that uh, the regular flu influenza virus does not it sticks around a little bit longer stuff like that so it does really have 
you know, if if nothing was to happen, it really could kill between one and three percent of the United States. Right. Which is three to ten million people. And that's a lot more than the flu. So I remember seeing a comic at some point where and, you know, I think I probably most people listening to this kind of don't need this, don't need this part of the story, but some might. I remember reading just a two panel comic, two dudes walking down the street. Dude one says, just you watch, man, they're going to they're going to lock everything down and and shut us up in in our homes and then nothing's going to happen. And the other dude next to him goes, that's the point. Like, that's the point. Right. And so and so the the stakes are, you know, three to 10 million people's lives. And and that's why the economy is being ground to a halt to try to prevent that from happening. And in particular, the knock on effects beyond just those three to 10 million people's lives. If the uh, United States or any hospital system has to deal with, you know, millions to tens of millions of people in, in the hospital at, at a given time, it just can't. Right. It just can't. It's not going to happen. And uh, that would, you know, if that happened, it would mean a lot more people died for a lot of other reasons as well, uh, because the hospital system can't. Right. There's one other number, one other metric I've seen that differentiates COVID-19 from the regular flu, which is this figure called r not. Yes. And that that's just like a fancy word for how many people get infected from one person. And the are not for COVID-19 based on the statistics that are currently available. And keep in mind, there's a lot of new data coming in is about four, which means that every one person who's infected with COVID-19 will infect on average four other people. And for the regular flu, that's somewhere between one and two. I think it's about 1.3 or 1.5. So from what we can tell so far, COVID is far more contagious and far more deadly, at least for the highest risk. Well, actually, no, for the highest risk and just for the total death figure. I mean, there are people dying in all age brackets. It's just clearly the elderly underlying health conditions are most at risk. Yeah. So, so uh, I think we're all past it being a democratic, you know, democratic party impeachment hoax. Now we need to, as, as a nation get past. And again, we're, this, this is where I'm, we're very much stating our, our belief here because it's so important and, and hopefully so obvious. Uh, we have to get past. It's just the flu. Don't worry. Uh, it's not just the flu. You do need to worry. Uh, stay indoors, folks. So as we talked about in the last episode, it seems increasingly likely that the quarantined measures needed to contain the outbreak of this deadly disease is going to have a major effect on the global economy. We don't think, and I think Eric and I see eye to eye on this, that this is that this recession that is almost surely coming if it hasn't already hit is not going to be the same as 2008. And by not the same, we just mean qualitatively different. It will have different characteristics. It doesn't mean that it'll necessarily be better or worse. But one one descriptor that I've read that I, I do buy into so far, far is this idea that it's going to be deep, acute, and probably shorter than 2008, in part just because the nature of what's causing the recession. Everyone needs to stay home right now. And that means that consumer demand is going to rapidly drop off. And we talked about all the reasons for this in the last episode. And that's going to have a major impact on GDP growth because consumer spending is a big part of GDP growth. Businesses are going to invest less because there's a lot more uncertainty, so on and so forth. But if a vaccine can be created and people can go back to work later this year, then so long as all the businesses are still around and jobs are still available, then presumably people could get back to work relatively quickly and they won't have the same degree of like debt workout to deal with following the 2008 recession which right. made that recovery so long and slow though so 
this is where this is where Xander and I see a little bit less eye to eye, and we can just be clear about this. There are some other indicators that we agree on the facts, but disagree on the potential impact of them. There's some there's some other factors here that are different from 2008 that have me particularly pessimistic, right? So this is this is Eric Fogg's personal opinion on what is the future likely to look like, right? So and and I am not a professional economist. In addition to the impact of everyone having to stay indoors for two to what eight, twelve months, right? Which which is what we understand. There are two other two other things going on with the economy right now that you know. Again, we've we talked about this in the last episode. We've talked about it with Jake, um, our our who is a professional economist, unlike Jake me. Meyer. Jake Meyer, yeah, thanks, and and brought it up a number of times over the last couple of years. Um, two two things are true now that are different from two thousand eight. One. Corporate debt is at a record high, right? So the percentage, if you take all the corporate debt and divide it by the GDP, it's 47%, which is a record high. And that was at the end of a bull, of a bull market, right? So that corporate debt is going to go up even more uh, as, as the economy contracts because the GDP that you're dividing it among, you know, that is the denominator, that goes down. And when corporate debt is at a record high, uh, unless you have the ability to, you know, pour in tons of liquidity, and which which the U.S. government does, mind you, but uh, but it does put a lot of these companies at risk. When a company is when a corporation is highly leveraged, it is depending on revenue coming in to be able to service its debt, um, and a lot of that revenue is drying up real fast. So what happens to that debt servicing? Obviously, again, the government can help with that, but the banks that that gave those loans, uh, they're also highly leveraged, right? So they need to get paid back. And what happens if they don't get paid back? And this is how you can have, you know, this is how you can have a, a debt crisis similar to what you had in 2008, but possibly worse, right? Depending on, depending on how the, the government responds. And I don't believe that the government could just magically make this go away with, with really any, um, any response, but it can, it can blunt. It. So corporate debt being record high means that there's a lot of risk to more corporations than there were in 2008 and risk to the banks that loaned them the money. And then, uh, and and I'll I'll state the other point, and then and then Xander, you can respond. The other the other factor that's different is that unlike 2008, the United States federal debt is as a percentage of GDP is higher than it's been at any point since World War II, and it's about to cross where it was in World War II as the debt increases and the GDP shrinks. Right, so we're going to have higher debt than at the end of World War II, and remember that in World War II. The debt was so high that the United States was like, was was getting everyone to buy war bonds to try to give it some more money, right, to keep going, and we are about to, we are going to cross that, and that you know at some point you know U- U.S. debt that there is, and and again we talked about this with Jake Meyer at some point debt gets so high that there becomes a debt servicing problem for the United States, and so so at the very least what the U.S. has to do after this stimulus bill, which I think is which I happen to think is not going to, it's, it's going to definitely blunt the pain, and, and, but it's, it's not going to be enough to make us go, oh, everything's fine now. So after this, the United States has to make some very hard decisions about its fiscal policy options and what are going to be the consequences of that and how do we deal with those, which basically means there's less ability to spend money than there used to be, right? There are more constraints, there are more negative consequences to just spending a lot of money than there were in 2008, and already we're spending almost three times as much as before. And it's not even going to, I think it's not even going to fix the, the, the problem itself. It's going to, it's going to blunt the pain today. 
And then finally, this is, I guess, uh, number 2.B. Interest rates were already quite low, whereas they were somewhere like 4 to 5% at the end of the business cycle in 2008. And they're like 1% at the end of this business cycle. And so there's less room for uh, monetary policy, right? Less room to, to add liquidity by dropping interest rates further. And those are the two big things that were done in 2008 to help, which was spend money and, and drop interest rates. And again, I, I, the, the stuff that, this is the stuff that I've been worried about for the past couple of years. Once we reach the end of a business cycle, we've, I, and, and is COVID the thing that kicks us into the end of the business cycle? And all this, all this stuff that you know, I was worried about or Jake Myron was worried about is going to happen, maybe. Um, that's, that's why I'm pessimistic. Xander, go ahead. Yeah, I don't feel great about things either. And I guess I should clarify that. What, the thing that I feel a little optimistic about is it seems like this stimulus bill is sort of like the best that it could have been. And I think to your point about continually running these deficits, it's a, it's a systemic problem. And it's past the point where it's one party or, or, or the other, right? The Republicans will claim they're the party of fiscal responsibility. It's nonsense. You can look at deficit spending as a percent of GDP over the last two decades, and both parties run deficits. And they run deficits to varying degrees. And a lot of fairly fiscally conservative economists are saying that the tax cuts in 2017 was blowing dry powder that should have been saved for lean times. You know, you can go on and on. But the point is, there are systematic incentives for politicians to spend money because it helps them get elected and they don't have to deal with the long-term consequences. I don't feel good about that. And this stimulus plan, $2 trillion by itself is going to increase the national debt by 10% just with this bill. And the 2019 or the 2020 budget was already set for about a trillion dollars. So it's been growing, and this is going to be on top of a growing deficit. I don't know how we fix that, but it's a major long-term problem. Quick, um, uh, quick clarification. You yeah. said the 2020 budget was set for a trillion. You mean the 2020 deficit? Yeah, sorry. The, the deficit is a trillion. Yeah, the budget's like four and a, yeah, exactly. Right. From the federal government, we'll be spending one trillion more than it will be receiving in revenue. Thank right. you. Oh, of course. So, yeah, I think some of where... Where Xander is a little bit less pessimistic is that the money being spent now is going to the places that are at risk, right? It's going to corporate, you know, everything I just talked about, corporate, you know, or and Xander just talked about. People can't work, so they don't have any money to spend anything, right? Okay, well, now they have some money. There are a lot of businesses that cannot operate, right? And, and they're highly leveraged, so they have to serve as debt, and some of them have to pay rent on their, you know, on their leases, right? Or else, uh, or else the, the landlord goes under and all that stuff. And there's money for that. And, and so Xander's, you know, Xander, who, who is more economically savvy than I am by what he studied, is seeing this stimulus bill address what seems to be the right stuff. Before we get into the details of it, just a couple signals that we've seen about what could be happening next. And, and these are, these are they're shots in the dark in a lot of ways, right? So maybe not bags of salt, but at least a pinch. What the pre stimulus bill, what the big financial institutions who try to look forward to this stuff are, you know, are doing is, is they're trying to understand or they're trying to take at least a stab at what's going to be the economic impact. The range of estimates varies wildly, but Q2 is, you know, Q2 is not going to be fun, right? There's, I forget who had the like 10% contraction number. I, I think it was, I, I read it on uh, in a report from Cushman and Wakefield, which is a mm. big real estate firm, but they were citing someone else. It might have been like Moody's or Oxford Analytics, but yeah. they're anticipating a ten percent 
There was like 10.8% contraction of GDP in the second quarter with a rebound in the third quarter, meaning growth resumes. That's what Cushman and Wakefield, citing other sources, said. Right. Uh, Goldman Goldman Sachs is on the other end, is on the more pessimistic end of the spectrum. They're seeing, again, pre-stimulus bill. So it might not be this bad, but they were seeing a 24% contraction in Q2, which just for a little bit of context, in 2008, sorry, in 2009, in the year 2009, GDP contracted by 2.5%. Uh, that was over the whole year, obviously. So having some recovery in Q3, Q4 would mean that the GDP does not contract by 10, 11, or 24% over the whole year, but, uh, but it would be contracting by probably more than in 2009. And Goldman, that's not even the war, and, you know, asterisk here, asterisk here, these estimates vary wide, wildly source to source. There's lots of different people throwing their hats in the ring as to the economic, short-term economic impact of this. The head of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, James Bullard, came out with figures that were really shocking to me, especially because I, I tend to generally consider uh, people who work for the Federal Reserve, especially in like the research department, as pretty credible sources. You know, they're academics. And he anticipated that U.S. unemployment this year could reach 30%, which is Whoa. depression level, and that GDP could undergo a short but 50% contraction. 50% contraction of real GDP. That's the head of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Wow. The analogy he used was a car driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour. It needs to slow down through a construction zone. And it can pick up afterwards and there's nothing wrong with the car. So his idea is we need to do this for public health and the economy will still be there afterwards, but it's going to be really severe in the short term. Estimates vary wildly. Yeah. Mnuchin was saying, uh, Mnuchin, who's the secretary of the treasury, was saying uh, potentially 20% unemployment if the right action is not taken. Now, again, this was before the bill, but it is also the case that in major U.S. economic centers, cases of of the novel coronavirus continue to accelerate. New York City being the worst, of course. Detroit and New Orleans are looking pretty bad. Um, California seems to be maybe okay um, for the moment, but but it's a little bit of and and I think speculating speculating about about literally unprecedented stuff for which there is no historical historical analogy for us to write on here. Some of the hard part is, you know, how long can you, how long can you ask people to to hunker down inside, and if you don't actually, you know, hit the hit the peak in a you know three week six week period, are they gonna are they gonna throw up their hands and just go outside and because everyone's getting cabin fever, right? Like actually psychological impacts that that limit our ability to to blunt this, uh, to blunt the growth of of novel coronavirus, right? So. So is there a double, is there sort of what, what you'd call like a double dip where people go back outside and then everyone gets sick again because there are enough active cases still, still out there? Who knows, right? And that's, that's part of the problem we're seeing. Oh, sorry. One more, uh, obviously one more signal we're seeing just came out last week, uh, which was not, not a fun number to look at. Uh, 3.3 million unemployment insurance claims last week. Again. Uh, we're, we'll we'll finally get to the stimulus bill thirty minutes in, but but this setup I think is helpful. That is five x higher than the previous peak, which is like nineteen eighty two or something of of a of a single weekly number of claims. I'm gonna guess that the next week it's it's gonna be bad too. Uh, it's gonna be the same kind of scale. So it's again it's this it's this just way more acute immediate thing than than we've ever seen before, right? And so. 
Yeah, and Eric, you think this that the market crash may be like on par with the 1929 contraction, right? I do. Yeah. Now, again, it's it what's going to determine what's going to determine whether it continues to track like that is how long this lasts and you know, so you know, for example, um Federal St. Louis Federal Reserve guy, you know, he said we have to slow down through the construction zone. Well, how long is the construction zone? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and we don't know. We just don't know, right? So, so could it be fifty percent, fifty percent contraction for three months? You know that 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 stabilizes and down it at half GDP and just hangs out there for three months. And what do we do with that? Do we hit thirty percent unemployment for three months and then you know and and how many when we come back finally, whenever that is, because we don't know how many hair salons, how many restaurants, you know, how many Main Street companies, how many cinemas. And how many of the businesses that support them are just gone? Yeah, the big risk, as far as uh, I can tell, is companies that don't have anything fundamentally wrong with them, but might run with like one or two months worth of cash reserves on hand on average, are just going to run into these walls where they don't have cash coming in. They still have to meet certain types of expenses. And that flows through to the property owners, which, you know, they have, it's a business for them. They have expenses to meet and they have mortgage payments to make. And then that flows through back to the banks. And as soon as you start talking about, you know, inability to pay mortgages for an extended period of time and liquidity crunches at the bank level, you're talking about potential systemic financial crises. And that's that's sort of how everything ripples upward in this case. Now, the reason we're talking about all these different estimates for economic impacts is because now clearly we're going to talk about some of the provisions in the stimulus bill. And part of the reason I and I am really trying to caveat how I put this and maybe a little bit more optimistic than than Eric in this case. It's just because it seems like, though I don't think the stimulus bill is going to fix things, I don't think that we should become complacent. It's not a panacea. I think that it does about everything that a bill could do, given where we are politically with all the political deadlock that we've been encountering over the last decade, the ability to work quickly to get money into people's pockets and keep them home for the quarantine while also trying to provide loan guarantees to business to make sure they're around after this construction zone, if you're using the car on the highway analogy, uh, after we pass that to make sure that everything's still there so that people can hop back to their jobs when they're done. Step on the gas. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, it, that may not be the case. People are going to get you know cash delivered. If you're a taxpayer, you get cash at some point, I don't have all the details yet, but you should be getting a twelve hundred dollar check cut from the federal government if you meet if you make below seventy five thousand dollars a year. But maybe that's not enough. Maybe that's enough for a month for some people, and this goes on for four months. And we can't, you know, it's going to be hard to pass a second stimulus bill in September if a second wave of this comes back like it did in the Spanish flu in nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen. Right, and it was the second wave of the Spanish flu that was the most deadly. So let's get into some of the specific provisions, and you'll probably notice that some of these are uh, some of our analysis is focused on different aspects of the stimulus bill, and this is in part just because Eric and I were both independently researching the stimulus bill for our own prospective businesses. We both work outside of Reconsider, right? So th- that's yeah, right. It's why this might be a little bit more uh, tailored towards things that might not be as relevant to people or sound as interesting, but so. I mentioned real estate a moment ago uh, because I work peripherally in real estate, but also real estate ties into the financial system in the way that I described. And part of the reason 2008 was so bad was because 
the real estate industry was tied into the financial system. And so when asset value collapsed, collateral collapsed, and you know everyone went underwater. So one thing that the stimulus bill tries to do is protect uh, property owners. And a lot of people will say, oh, well, property owners don't need protection, so on and so forth. And like, fat I cats. get that. Don't Go help ahead. Them. Don't help the fat cats. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that argument. I understand that like rich people won't be hurt as much in this case as poor people will be. The thing is, is that because real estate is so intricately linked with the financial system, that if bad things happen in real estate and a lot of people start losing massive amounts of money there, then it will impact the financial system and thereby impacting everyone else. So I think it's, I think it's also worth noting that the vast majority of real estate owners don't, don't necessarily just have a bunch of cash assets sitting around either, right? To be able to meet all their obligations, like right. for mortgages and stuff like that. So like, I don't own, I don't own rental property, but I know people that do. And, you know, they, they get the rental prop, you know, they don't have, you know, you want a $750,000 rental property, like a multifamily home. You don't just say like, well, I'm going to take $750,000 out of my $10 million that's sitting around. Right. And, I mean, some people do, but most people who are, la- who are your landlords, um, if you are a renter like me, they don't just go like, yeah, I have $10 million. I'll just throw $750,000 at this and buy it cash and uh, just suck the rental, the rental, uh, the rental money for it. It's no, they take a mortgage, right? They put, they, they have, they, they're obviously doing fairly well because they're able to, they're able to put the down payment in. It's a, you know, it's not their first home. Um, so they're, they're doing fairly well, but they probably don't have the cash sitting around to pay that mortgage indefinitely if their rent dries up, right? Um, so, so there are real, as, as much, you know, what, one of the things we have to keep in mind about this bill is that it's a mix of relief, almost like humanitarian relief for the people who are really, for the individuals and families who are most at risk, which is obviously critically important. But in addition, it is a economic stimulus bill that is meant to try to prevent the kind of systemic problems that Xander mentioned that would that would make it much harder for the economy to recover. And kind of no matter no matter how you feel, no matter where you are in the capitalist socialist spectrum, if you're going to have resources to like if, you know, everyone's got to eat, everyone's everyone needs all this stuff, like someone has to make it. Right. And that is the economy. Um, the economy is the thing that makes. Yeah. And, you know, I've had some people say, well, well, the banks could just take possession of these properties and sell them and, you know, re- recover the collateral value. And that is why I mean, look, in a normal case, that is why banks take collateral is because if an individual business fails, the banks made whole. But the problem is with a systemic emergency like this. If banks are taking possession of five to ten thousand different commercial properties, all of which are pulling in no income. Commercial properties are valued based on the income that they generate. So the banks would have to be selling all of these assets into a falling market. The analogy that I like is trying to catch a falling knife. So right. banks won't. Banks would probably lose their shirt if they had to take possession of things. And they're not in the business of managing buildings. It's not really something banks tend to want to do because they don't have expertise in it in the same way that the property managers do. Yeah, Let me get into some of the specifics here now. I was just so, going to some... I was just going to put some numbers on what you described, Xander. So if they, you know, if a bank, if a bank has 10,000 properties, maybe, you know, it's just getting, I don't know, $10 million a month, right? Which is just a made up number in, in revenue, right? And it has to repossess all those and then has to go resell them. Well, how much can it actually realistically sell them for? 
if they're not able to generate any revenue. Maybe you could sell them for $50 million, maybe, right? And, you know, and that would, if they could do that, which would incur a lot of additional expense because they need to suddenly become real estate traders, which they're not. So maybe they could buy themselves a couple, you know, a few, essentially a few months of runway, right? That they were otherwise, that otherwise felt quite secure going forward. Um, so the thing is like the value of those properties, because it was dependent on the income that it was, that those properties were getting, right? Due to having hair salons and restaurants and such, the value collapses, right? So, so it's, it's, they, they can't just, they can't just go like, oh, sell, you know, repossess, sell and be fine. They, that, that actually won't work. So one of the restrictions that the stimulus bill will lift is there's a, you can write off depreciation, which is a non-cash expense. So a building or a piece of property decreases in value over time because it gets used. And you can write off this non-cash expense against your income and you know benefit from a tax basis on it. So the stimulus bill will lift. It's a $500,000 per couple restriction of depreciation write-offs against other profits as well. So in the very short term, People making that amount of money and more, which you know, that's definitely one percent. If if you're thinking about it that way, are going to uh, be able to write off depreciation to a greater extent against other things. That's that's one provision. Another is it. Uh, this bill will accelerate depreciation for this thing called qualified improvement property. Qual- that's really wonky. Qualified improvement property just means like if you're a retail business or a restaurant and you build out improvements inside of a building then you can those improvements add to the asset to the value of the asset and you can depreciate that increased amount over time the 2017 tax cut had like this drafting error that lawmakers claimed they didn't mean to pass but did and it was impossible to fix and so the idea is in the stimulus bill that gets fixed you're going to be able to expense additions uh, to qualified improvement property instead of depreciating it over like a 39 year um, schedule. And all that means is that if you spend a hundred thousand dollars in improvements and you know, you're a business that owns the building you're in, you can write that hundred thousand dollars off in the same year against your taxes instead of dividing a hundred thousand by 39 every year and then doing it over time. So that's another thing. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are helping out both commercial landlords as well as individual homeowners and we'll come back in a, in a section to sort of uh, how the stimulus impacts individuals and individual homeowners. But both Fannie and Freddie, which own a lot of the mortgages in the U.S., like Wells Fargo or Chase may originate the loan, but ultimately they'll sell it to a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac that'll ma- manage the loan over, over its life. They are offering mortgage forbearance to landlords in exchange for not evicting tenants. So if... Uh, a landlord promises to not evict a tenant due to COVID-19 difficulties, then they basically get a 30-day forbearance on their loan, which means they don't have to pay the loan for 30 days, and they're able to request two additional 30-day extensions. So the big mortgage holders are stepping in to make sure that um, you know landlords are you know, they're not forced to try to go find income elsewhere and they're not evicting tenants and tenants are okay. And um, banks aren't needing to repossess all these commercial properties. So that's the real estate side. What about the small business side? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, small businesses, what, what the government is trying to do with small businesses primarily is limit the number of layoffs, right? Small businesses employ, you know, a much larger number of Americans than large ones. And they're saying, just, you know, just hang on, guys, here's some money. So the, the biggest, the, the most obvious thing that they're doing is expanding small, small business loans $10 million or 250% of payroll, whichever, uh, sorry, it's 250% of payroll up to $10 million. So whichever is lower. And my understanding of this is also for certain qualified businesses uh, and small business, by the way, is, is less than 500 people. So for certain qualified businesses, uh, you, they are also allowing these loans to be forgiven for payroll for the next two months which would mean that you're essentially providing free, free payroll. Uh, you know, the government's covering your payroll for the next two months. So you get, you, you, your employees don't cost you anything over the next few months. So, you know, please don't, please don't lay them off is the idea. The interest on those loans is generous. I believe it's 0% interest for a year and then 4% interest after that up to 10 years to pay back. So it's, it's a pretty good deal if you're a small business. And that total small business program with a bunch of other stuff on top of that is $367 billion. Sandra, you added something here about uh, NOL carrybacks that, again, you, you know this better than I do. Can you take it? <laughs> yeah. And this is going to sound really wonky, but I'm, I'm going to try to just explain it in normal terms because I do think this is kind of a big deal and this is going to be a big help to small businesses. There is this thing called a net operating loss, and it just means that you, you lost money this year. Your expenses were more than your income. And a lot of the times, businesses will employ this tax accounting thing called an NOL, net operating loss, carry forward. And all that means is if you lose you know, $100,000 this year, you can use that $100,000 loss for three years in the future. If you only make $20,000 next year, you can you know write off a portion of that loss in the future. And the idea is it lets businesses recoup if they incur a big loss. Now, the stimulus bill implements this thing called a carry back. And I actually didn't know what this meant. I had to look into it a little bit. But a carry back means that if you incur a loss in 2020, so this year due to coronavirus, you can take that loan or you can take that loss and apply it retroactively to previous year's tax returns for five years. So that means that if you made you know, a certain amount of money in 2018, 2017, 2016, and you're going to lose like $100,000 this year, you can actually submit this loss against your prior tax returns to the IRS this year and receive an immediate refund from those prior year tax returns. So it's kind of wonky, but the idea is this is one way for businesses who are going to incur 
uh, liquidity crunches, this idea that they're going to run out of money and have to go bankrupt to get some cash into their pocket right now in order to stay around. Fast cash now. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Provided to you from the IRS. Oh, and this yeah. is for non-real estate businesses only, as right. I understand it. Yeah. One of the, yeah. One of the key details of the loans as well here is that, that I forgot to mention was that normally, um, so again, there's a 500 person limit on what makes a small business. Normally, something like a chain of restaurants or a chain of stores, right? They would just aggregate everyone that works there. And most of them would be more than 500, right? This even applies to like, say, like Wahlburger in Boston, right? Or I guess everywhere now. But one of the things that they changed was that certain classifications that these larger businesses, they will have no problems figuring out. So, so I'm not going to get into the details. Certain classifications that are like food, hospitality, these, these kind of main street kinds of stores, they can, instead of counting everyone, they can just count everyone who works at the store or that location as, a small, as an individual small business, which they weren't able to, to do before this bill, so that they are also eligible for this, um, in particular because, again, Congress recognized that it was these main street stores that were in a lot of trouble. And what's interesting, so just interesting caveat about, you know, obviously Xander, Xander knows a lot about real estate. The reason I know a lot about this detail is that, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm obviously in a, I'm in a tech startup and uh, this is private equity and, and venture capital, like scrambling right now to figure out which of their, which of their, which of their portfolio companies apply for this and which don't. And the reason some might not isn't because they have more than 500 people, but because that special dispensation, which I just talked about for these main street stores, doesn't apply to private equity and VC. And so when you think of, when you think of a single company, it's really about who owns it. And so if VCs own more than 50%, like if a VC portfolio owns more than 50% of a bunch of companies or private equity portfolio, then all those companies get like wrapped up together as as kind of a single entity in this under the private equity firm or the VC firm. And so, you know, they might have a company that has 20 people that's not eligible for this loan because the VC owns more than, or VCs collectively own more than 50% of it. So they're counted in this like big company that's more than 500 people and they can't get these loans. Um, it's bananas. You know, even, even my company right now is still just trying to figure this out, right? Figure out what we're eligible for, what help we can get. There's a lot of chaos on it. I don't have a good answer. You know, obviously, if you are a venture backed company or in a private equity firm, like go to your investors and say, you know, what research have you done on this? Those of you who are like sole proprietors or um, have LLCs and such, self employed independent contractors, this actually does apply to you generally. Um, And my understanding is also like it kind of doesn't hurt to apply. I may be wrong about this, but I don't think I don't think like applying for the loan is is going to ding you at all in in any major way or in any in any way. So if you if you feel like you know in in you you know you guys are kind of the backbone of the economy. So uh, if you believe that this applies to you, do a little bit more research, and uh, you may be able to get help. Yeah, if there's one thing I want to emphasize is if you run a small business out there. There's a fair amount of support for you right now, and it's not all coming from this federal stimulus bill. A lot is coming from the federal stimulus bill, but a lot's also coming from state and local governments. Like the state of California has its own set of stimulus initiatives. The city of Los Angeles has its own set of stimulus initiatives. And there's there's a lot of different types of programs you can sign up for right now to help small businesses out. 
Um, going back to the federal stimulus bill, just to try to make sure we're ticking through all of these, uh, small businesses are going to be able to write off more of their net operating losses. So not only are they going to be able to carry them back, but they're going to be able to write off more of them in each year. They're also going to be able to write off a greater percent of interest on their business loans. So there was a cap before. Now it's a slightly higher cap. So the idea is you can put a little bit more money in your pocket. Uh, some of these small business loans are being off, uh, offered through the SBA, the Small Business Administration, and they're trying to really expand who they're offering loans to. So especially proprietors, sole proprietors, independent contractors, and self-employed individuals. So if you're not like a C-Corp, there still may be a loan out there for you. And they're really going hard to help out the retail and restaurant business because those are businesses really impacted by people having to stay home, right? So let's see, what was the last thing I had here? Uh, da, 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 da. All right, large businesses. So obviously there's a number of very large industries that are that are seeing no revenue right now, airlines being an obvious one. Um, there is a $25 billion grant to airlines, um, passenger airlines, $4 billion grant to cargo carriers. So that's a grant. That's, that's just free money. But it's to be used exclusively to pay employee wages, salaries, and benefits. Uh, but it turns out money's fungible. So mm-hmm. it's free money. There's also a big pile of loans and loan guarantees to make it easier for these folks to get these loans. One of the things that's attached to it is that um, anyone who takes a loan uh, cannot buy back stock until the loan is paid back. So you might be familiar with the sort of recent controversy about a lot of airlines who uh, like kind of, you know, like eight days before coronavirus or something terrible like that, bought back a bunch of stock. Right. And so buying back stock just disperses, you know, money to shareholders. And uh, so that money is now out of the coffers of these, you know, they had coffers, they gave the money to the shareholders, which is like, which, you know, which is their job. Ultimately, uh, the timing was very poor. So then now they're cash strapped uh, and their, you know, their investors have all this money uh, or their shareholders have all this money. Um, so that stipulation that you can't buy back stock until one year after the loan is paid back um, is added to that big business stuff. I don't think so. Basically, some industries get free money and, and loans in order, to, in order for the entire industry not to just collapse. Yeah. Um, and some specific industries are going to get some sort of bailout like that. Yeah. Let's see. Next, there is a lot of support going to individuals. I actually think the largest portion of the stimulus bill, about $560 billion, is going to individuals. And that's the largest out of any category. Sort of the biggest piece of support is supposed to be this direct payment. It's just $1,200 to every taxpayer if you make less than $75,000 a year, um, or it's $2,400 for married couples. This amount goes up if you have kids, and it goes down if you make a certain amount of money. So there are different phases. I don't have a good idea of when people are supposed to get these direct deposits or checks, but supposedly it's supposed to be coming pretty soon to help people live through the quarantine. I have to assume it's from 2019 income because it's based on, you know, that's how the government knows, you know, it's your your 2019 tax return that or maybe it's 2018 because that's the only that's the year that they have everyone's tax returns or or something. I mean, we're still, you know, we, we're still figuring out. But the I guess the, the key point is my understanding is that you don't need to apply for it. That's that's what I understand, too. Yeah, that's what I think is correct. Uh, for homeowners, they're similar to multifamily property owners. There's going to be support from uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which own a lot of mortgages for 
single family homes. I've read different things about this, but uh, I know that a lot of banks are offering immediate assistance, just like 90 days. This is just one example that I've heard of 90 days where you don't have any fees and where there's no credit reporting if you don't pay. So the idea is before we even figure out what a new loan payment plan is, you can just take three months off. You will owe all that money. Right. In three months, if you don't work out a separate payment plan with us, but because the banks are just so swamped with requests right now, they're just saying everyone hit pause. We won't report it to the credit agencies. Just don't pay us for a couple of months. Again, this depends on the bank. But then there is a lot of support coming out where Fannie and Freddie Mac are requiring certain banks to allow forbearance for I think it was up to twelve months. And again, wow. forbearance is you don't have to pay pay your mortgage. You don't have to pay mortgage payments, or you don't have to pay the full amount of your mortgage payments for a certain amount of time, and Throughout this entire period, banks will be figuring out what the new payment schedule is, whether those payments get tacked on to the end, right? You don't just owe less money. You just don't have to pay for this interim period. And because Fannie and Freddie Mac are these governmental institutions that own a lot of single family uh, mortgages, they sort of have the power to require banks to do certain things or have the power to forego requirements for uh, mortgage holders. Right, because they can get money directly from the government to to cover their expenses while they're waiting for this money to show. Right. So, little thing, but those of you who like to procrastinate on your tax returns can continue <laughs> doing so. Uh, they're not due until the 15th now. Of and, July. Sorry, yes, the 15th of July instead of the 15th of April. So, you know, keep procrastinating, I guess. Here's the one I think that really matters uh, that or rather that's going to make a huge difference in particular, given the massive spike in unemployment we saw. And, and my belief that we're going to see more is unemployment benefits have been expanded in a way that they never have before. Um, just just totally unprecedented. So in the 2009 bailout, um, they extended unemployment insurance coverage from 26 to 39 weeks doing the same here. They added twenty five dollars a week. So one hundred dollars a month to your normal unemployment insurance benefits. So however those are calculated state by state, you just get another $100 from the federal government, congratulations, uh, per month. That number is now $2,400 per month. Hmm. Like, let that sink in. They're just, and it's for the next four months only. Uh, They may extend it, you know, it's time to do another stimulus bill. But if you got unemployed due to coronavirus, right? So you have to like make a case I don't know how, but you have to make a case that this is coronavirus related. It's probably timing related or, or something. Uh, but if you were unemployed due to coronavirus, uh, you get an extra on top of your on top of your normal unemployment insurance. You get twenty four hundred dollars a month from the government. One thing that I have read that I'm I'm pretty sure is right is that uh, there was a little bit of bickering in Congress over this because some people said some people that get laid off are going to make more money. Than they made when they were employed. I was like, yep, yep, but you know what? Let's just ship it, right? Let's just ship it. I know, yep, it's not perfect. That's okay. Just ship it. So I, I keep coming back to that, man. Like, I feel like so often I hear this argument from politicians that, oh, well, I'm opposed to Bill X. And I'm not talking about the stimulus here, I'm just talking about policy generally because it's not perfect. And that seems like such a I mean, that really seems like a tribal argument to me because no piece of policy is perfect. Everything is a compromise. Everything is imperfect. And if you're arguing against something because it's not perfect, then you're kind of just lining up against party lines, right? 
and I, I just think that sort of uh, position, that sort of argument is wholly ineffective and not particularly contributive to the debate. Right. And you want to bring, I guess we're, we're pulling out of this, of, of the listing for a second, but you know, ideally you would want to in the debate, like as you're putting it together, you'd want to, you'd want to bring that up, right. And see how much support there is for changing that part of the bill. And mm-hmm. should we add an amendment? Can we get that amendment? You know, can we get agreement in Congress that we could get an amendment over the line to improve this thing? Right. But if not, just, you know, okay, you can't. Right. And yeah, you're going to, you know, you are going to be, you know, voting on these multi-thousand or multi-hundred page bills that have some details that, that you think are wrong. Now, uh, that, that we are now advocating for pragmatism in general. I think, you know, I, you, the, the only way I'll temper that is like, of course, there's stuff that's worth fighting about. Right. Mm-hmm. There's stuff there's stuff sure. that's worth holding the line about today uh, is not that day. Yeah. A couple other things for individuals here that we saw earlier. So payroll taxes being uh, deferred. Sorry, that's actually for small businesses. Um, payroll taxes being deferred. Group health plans and insurance providers have to cover preventative services related to coronavirus without cost sharing. Uh, so basically you get free preventative stuff for coronavirus, such as testing. and there is a tax credit for retaining employees worth up to 50% of wages paid during the crisis. That's where it is. For businesses forced to suspend operations that have seen gross receipts fall by 50% for the previous year. So the point of that is to keep you from being unemployed, even though what I just told some folks, they'd prefer to be unemployed at this point because you might actually be making more money. Uh, I, think that's the, I think that's the big stuff that's not directly related to health. All right. So the last major category of the stimulus bill, and we may be missing something. I think we've been as upfront as possible about sort of how much time we've had to put into this. But there is this last major category of money going to states and local governments. And I'll be completely honest, this is the category I've looked into the least just because of my time constraints. But I'm going to start off by reading you a passage from a U.S. news article, and we'll have this linked up in the show notes. These show notes in particular are going to have a lot of good additional information. If you want to start going into the rabbit hole and figuring out some of this stuff on your own, reconsidermedia.com slash podcast. Check it out. There's a lot of good links in this one in particular. Mm. Um, But here's this quote from this US News article. State and local governments will receive about $400 billion of funding and $150 billion of that will be allocated to states territories, local and tribal governments to make up coronavirus related costs in what is known as the coronavirus relief fund. Each state will receive at least 1.25 billion, uh, except the District of Columbia, which will receive about 500 million. And just to get a sense of sort of what some of the biggest recipients in terms of which states are the biggest recipients out of this category, California is set to receive the most at 15 billion. Uh, Florida is about nine billion. New York is about seven hundred. Uh, sorry, seven and a half billion. Illinois five billion. New Jersey three and a half billion. A Texas lot of public probably feels like it got hosed. Texas might have gotten a lot too. I didn't pull this from like okay. the, the list of the bill itself. I, pu- I pulled it from the body of a Politico art, uh, article, sure. um, which uh, is included in the show notes too. Yeah. Um, public transit agencies are going to get. 25 billion uh, of funding to make sure they're all right um, or as all right as possible. Education agencies will receive about 30 billion. And then there will be an additional disaster relief fund established for $45 billion. So um, all told, we have a a graphic that we we grabbed from, let's see, it was an NPR article um, that just kind of shows out how everything is broken out. 
about 560 billion is going to individuals. About, let's see, a 900 billion is going to businesses of different sizes, about 340 state and local governments, about 150 to various public health initiatives, and then sort of other things here and there. But that's kind of how this two trillion gets broken out, all told. Yeah. The, uh, of the, Probably not surprisingly, over $100 billion just goes into hospitals and the VA, the Veterans Administration, uh, to provide health care just because they're anticipating a lot more health care necessary, right? And not everyone is insured in the United States, and you've got to treat them anyway. Uh, $16 billion for a strategic national stockpile of pharmaceutical and medical supplies. And uh, we talked about group, group health plans already. The Ah, a detail for individuals that, I, that we missed was... Uh, federal student loan payments are suspended through September 30th with no accrual of interest on these loans. So those of you with uh, student loans payments, student loan payments, you can stop paying them for a bit. So lucky you. That about rounds out, rounds out what we had prepared for this show. Uh, we'd like to reiterate that this is more of a public service announcement sort of show than most. We, If you are a patron on Patreon, thank you very much for supporting the show. We're mm-hmm. not going to, you know, charge for more than two episodes a month because that's what we normally do. If you find these shows helpful and you do want to be a patron, please go to patreon.com slash reconsider. We're going to do our best to keep information pumping out. We're going to try to not chase the news because that's not what we do best. We're going to try to keep providing some of this research, some of the analysis that we do. If you do go to patreon.com slash reconsider, we know the video and some of the the copy there is a little old. So we apologize for that. We are working on a bit of a marketing push. So you'll be seeing some new stuff from us in the future. Hopefully that kind of piques your interest a little bit. But in the meantime, we'd really appreciate the support if you find value in this show. If you want to interact with us, we're on social media at ReconsiderPod. On Facebook at Reconsider Pod, you can find me individually at Xander Snyder X on Re- on Twitter. I do different things sometimes. Yeah, what am I missing anything here, Eric? Nope. All right. We hope everyone's staying safe out there. We hope this was helpful. We hope that if you are affected by this pandemic, and it seems like pretty much everyone is, you get at least some assistance that you need in this bill. Stay safe and good luck. This is Xander signing off. This is Eric signing off. Stay healthy, everyone. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.